This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you not from Vox Media headquarters. I'm recording this from the Vox Media Bay Ridge headquarters, which is my house. And that's where we're going to record a lot of these episodes for the indefinite future, um, for reasons you guys all understand. First of all, I just want to say thanks to everyone who's listening. Thanks to everyone who sent in kind notes. Um, and thanks for any support you guys are going to offer in the future. It is all appreciated. We hope this is helpful for you. Also want to thank everyone at Vox Media who is making this possible, including Jelani Carter, who's on the other end of this uh, in New Jersey, producing this as I'm speaking to you right now, and everyone else who's making all this possible, including our great ad people. In terms of future programming, obviously we're going to do a lot of coronavirus chat um, because it's relevant for, again, for all the obvious reasons. If you have specific questions, topics, ideas you think it'd be good for us to explore in the coming days, weeks, months, send them in. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on email. And also, we're going to think about giving you stuff that isn't coronavirus stuff from time to time because you might want a break from that. We've got one of those episodes taped already. Um, we're figuring out when to bring that to you. Uh, and we may have some special episodes as well. So again, send in your comments, send in your ideas. Um, positive is better than negative, but we'll take whatever you can offer. As far as this episode that you're going to hear right now, uh, a bunch of different interviews with different folks who've got different perspectives on media and coronavirus. One of them is a little far afield, but I think you'll find it worthwhile. We have Stratechery's Ben Thompson talking about uh, the power of the internet for good and evil, and specifically social media. Uh, ben is also in Taiwan, so you can hear what it's like to live in Taiwan right now. Um, this is a, a territory that dealt with uh, coronavirus before the U.S. did, and it's an interesting perspective. We also have Rich Greenfield talking about the way the movie business is responding to coronavirus, specifically letting you stream at least one new movie uh, to your home instead of going to the theater, which you can't go to anyway. And lastly, we've got Bob Philbin, who is the co-founder of Crisis Text Line. There's no real media angle here. This is just an interesting person running an interesting service that is offering free help uh, and also a chance for you to volunteer and help other people. Um, I think this will be useful and hopefully inspirational to a lot of you. Okay. We're going to start the show right now. I'm here talking to Ben Thompson. Um, he's not in New York. He's not in Los Angeles. He is where? Where, where are you based, Ben? I am in Taipei, Taiwan. I knew that, but I just wanted to lay it up for you. It's like the safest place in the world. Yeah, Ben is, we're going to talk about that. Ben is the publisher of Stratechery, a one-man, uh, very useful publishing empire. Uh, we've talked to him several times before, and now is a particularly good time to talk to him about what's happening in Taiwan, what's not happening in Taiwan, and a couple pieces he wrote about uh, Twitter and information and the coronavirus. Welcome, Ben. You want to describe what it's like in Taiwan right now? Because I think it's pretty different than various parts of the United States and the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite relaxed here. I think it's actually getting to the point where people are worried it's getting too relaxed. Uh, you know, we had our sort of panic scare back in January when this first happened. And the Taiwanese government reacted extremely quickly. People reacted extremely quickly. I think in large part because of SARS back in 2003, which killed uh, around 80 people here. And then also, you know, people are in Taiwan, people are in, or excuse me, people are in China, people are in Wuhan. And I think there was a lot of rumors going around. And there is, uh, as you might imagine, a, a fairly high degree of distrust of the Chinese government. And so that, I think, prompted a, a probably the fastest response in the world. They were boarding airplanes from Wuhan in December to check people's temperature and, you know, move to close the borders, particularly with China in January, far ahead of anyone else. 
And that proved to be pretty effective as far as, you know, I think a lot of places like uh, Hong Kong, for example, has been very successful in limiting the spread of people, like community transmission, everyone wearing masks, et cetera. Here, it's been much more about sealing the borders. And the the good news is schools were closed. The Chinese New Year was extended. Schools were closed an additional three weeks on top of the two weeks already scheduled. And then stuff reopened and stuff's been pretty much back to normal. And um, so if, you, I, if you're walking down the street, if you're if you're walking around Taiwan, would you know something is different than it was two months ago, three months ago? I mean, not really there. I mean, there are more masks than usual. But the thing to remember is in Asian countries, people wear masks all the time anyway, even if they're the slightest bit sick. And, and again, I think Martha might be from the SARS time period, but it's a thing in general. And so there's there's definitely more masks. Uh, we it's can't culturally to prevent someone else from getting sick, right? Isn't that that's the right? That, that's right. And I think that's you know I, I've contributed this to a bit. You know, like there was the you know I mentioned the update of washing hands is more important than wearing masks. But I think the mask thing it doesn't stop you from getting sick per se, but it stops you from spreading it. And the more we find out about this, that it may be a you know quite often asymptomatically transferred. I think it, the masks actually probably make a big difference, and a lot of the advice might have been um, misguided in that regard. But I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a coronavirus expert. Just to be super clear, no, but, no, and I, and I, I do. I mean, so with that in mind, you are a tech expert, a journalism well, expert. Well, well, I just want to say too, the uh, there's yeah. a, a more concern here, particularly in the last few days, and there have been a a big jump in cases, and that's all people coming back from abroad, and I think there's a lot of people are getting pretty nervous about that fact uh, that people are going to bring it in. There's going to be sort of a, you know, we have to buckle down again. And um, so I, I actually think things will start tightening up a bit in the next in the next week. So stipulating that you're not an epidemiologist or any other kind of ist, is there anything that we can learn about living in America today? It's we can't close the borders or can't close them anymore. Um, this looks like there's community spread throughout the United States. Is there any practical advice that our, our listeners should think about um, giving for someone who's lived through a couple versions of this now? You know, I, I don't know. I, 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 I hesitate to sort of go too far. And the situation is really so different in part because we're starting from a different spot. Mm -hmm. It actually makes me nervous in some regards that maybe like next year, there'll be a big wave that sort of yeah. sweeps, sweeps through. Uh, I, I think that, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but like the vice president of Taiwan is an epidemiologist uh, who kind of came to achieve sort of status in the SARS episode when he kind of took over halfway through and, and kind of got things in order. And Taiwan had a had a plan. They executed on the plan. There's been tremendous amount of transparency. Like there's posters that show every single case in Taiwan and where they got it from and what the tracing was. And it, so the transparency has been great. But there's also things that I'm not sure that Americans are ready to accept, or at least weren't previously. Uh, Taiwan has uh, a national health system, for one, which makes it easier to, to get care. They also integrate a national health care information with customs information. So immediately they had sort of a database. If someone came in and was was not looking well, they could look up right away, did this person previously travel? When did they cross the border last? Et cetera. And so there's a lot more sort of data in general about individuals that the government has. And that's part of this a cultural thing. Like, I mean, Chinese cultures for thousands of years have been had household registrations and kind of knowing where everyone is. That's sort of a, just a thing. And so a lot of that is really beneficial in a time like this. And unfortunately, may not be particularly applicable to a place like the U.S. Yeah, some of it seems cultural and, and nearly impossible to bring over. The idea of electing leaders uh, who take science seriously and, and government seriously, that seems in the realm. But uh, I guess we'll find out. I mean, I'm I'm certainly not going to defend the 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 response here, but I think it's probably a useful time to not get too particularly partisan in that no one took this seriously, and you know I think there's 
aspects of the West generally and the U.S. specifically that are just particularly, you know, an open society uh, that prioritizes individual freedom is great in the vast majority of circumstances. And a virus spreading is probably one of the ones where it's it's not ideal. (sighs) Okay. Um, hopefully we have this conversation in, in a while and it's, it's a little less fraught. Um, I do want to ask you about some stuff you published on Stratechery. I think, again, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what Ben does for a living. If you don't, you should read Stratechery if you're listening to this podcast. Comes out, what, three times a week, Ben? Uh, well, there's a, usually a free article once a week and then an additional three articles are for subscribers only. So four times a week. Okay, you should pay for it with your own money. I do. A couple pieces Ben wrote recently that I want to ask him about that are related. Uh, the first one I think was last week. It's called Zero Trust Information, which is both a, a sort of history of, of computing and also a, a sort of media criticism piece. Do you want to do you want to sum up what zero trust information means? Well, I mean, in fine form, I'm going to push back on your description a little bit. I don't, yeah. I don't know that it was necessarily a media criticism piece. It was mm-hmm. maybe more of an internet defense piece. Sure. And it, it's interesting you framed it I think it that those way. two are often linked. Well, you know, which I think is unfortunate. And the, the reality is, you know, the internet makes everyone a publisher. And it's very easy to see all the places where that is problematic. I mean, you have all the misinformation. You have, you know, obviously it's been a huge topic over the last last three to four years. There's there's debates around how much impact that had, but there's no debate around the fact that there is a lot of misinformation online. It's just sort of something that comes, that comes with the yes. territory. And my point in that is, well, the same forces that result in a lot of misinformation also result in good information servicing that wouldn't have earlier. And this is a pretty good example. There were a fair number of people and the the amount sort of increased steadily, really banging the drum, sounding the alarm about this virus going back to January. And you combine that with this Seattle flu team, which is kind of the sort of team we needed in every city, keeping an eye on that sort of stuff. I think that will probably be an outcome is we'll have programs like that who was basically barred by the central government from testing for this virus, even though they had all these samples and all these people. And, and they ran the test anyway and released the information on Twitter. And that was the single sort of most important fact because it showed that it had been spreading for six weeks. And what happened was you started having private individuals and large private companies starting to respond, starting to ask people to work from home, starting to close down, starting to restrict travel. And if you think about it, it's pretty incredible that that happened, one, in the absence of any government direction, and two, in the absence of data, because there were no testing. Like it was, it was really a case of, here is the science, here is a piece of evidence that this has been happening for six weeks. And people acted on that in the absence of traditional sort of means by which they would do so. And this is going to be a very trying few months. It's going to be, you know, particularly in the in, in sort of the Washington region where it seems to have spread the most and people are going to die and it's going to be, it's going to be awful. And I th- just wanted to note that I think, you know, it's going to be somewhat slightly less awful because of sources like Twitter, because every little bit, every little bit of early response because of the exponential growth, just pays off down the road massively in a way that we can't, we, we won't even be able to measure. We won't know for sure how many lives were saved by companies acting one day, one week, you know, two weeks early. But it will make a difference. And that sort of leads into a broader point that, look, we're stuck with the internet. It is here. And yes, there is misinformation. Yes, it's an issue. But there are real benefits. And to focus only on one side and to start lead to arguments that ask for more centralized control in a scenario where centralized control actually really hurt us 
it, it may not be uh, thinking about the full picture. This it reminded me. The piece reminded me in some ways of some of the techno utopianism that was sort of standard if you read tech writing, uh, but popular tech writing in the late '90s and uh, the first internet boom, and all the way up through 2005, 2008 with the blog boom and the idea of disag- you know uh, disaggregating publishing power and anyone could be a publisher and lots of information would get out. And then we and then I think over the last few years, the popular conception is that that's all terrible. And I think your piece is a response to that, right? The idea is, look, this is what, ha- look, the, the 2016 election is what happens when everyone's a publisher. And the thing that, that was resonant for what you wrote uh, in your piece was conversations I've had with tech people over the last couple of years. And they'd say, look, we do have conversations inside Name Your Company about the pros and cons of this decentralized platform system we have up. And we do realize that there are real serious consequences and, and, and ill effects. People can die based on how people misuse our platform. And we think about that and we think that on the net, that there's still more good that comes out of it. Now, we can't ever say that out loud at the code conference or anywhere else because we'll be pilloried, but that is really what we think. And that is one of the reasons you see sort of platform publishers, for instance, so so resistant to being called publishers, that they really do think that's a better, they do think they have a better version than traditional publishing. And your piece seems like you're backing them up in that sense. Well, I, I, to me, it's just a, it's, it's a fact of life. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the reality is, is no platform is a publisher in any meaningful sense of the word. They have no knowledge or control of what is out there. And that's just the reality. Like yeah, but they've, cho- they've chosen that system that they could not have. No, that system. I, I don't think so. I think we would have, we would have the system regardless. It's the nature of the internet. Like the really only alternative to widespread, anyone can publish nature is China system mm-hmm. where anyone can publish or can be censored. We also have a, pretty good example of what's the downside of that system. I mean, th- this this whole idea that China bought us time is ridiculous. The coronavirus in Wuhan started spreading in November, and it was not acknowledged until late January. So we're talking you know, multi-months, and that was really the only chance to stop it. I mean, their U.S. was, by the time it got to the U.S., the U.S. was screwed. It was coming in from all, you know, from Europe, from, from China, from everywhere. That's not to defend the U.S. response by any means. Obviously, it's been woefully deficient. But we see the problem of limiting sort of emergent information of of having a centralized authority decide what is or isn't able to publish. And so if the choice is complete central lockdown or let a thousand followers bloom, even though a lot of them are rotten. I, that, look, that's yeah, look, I mean, you, you, let's let's stipulate that the Internet exists. It's very hard to shut it down. It's also different than running platforms and profiting from platforms that are built on this. Um where people, I think, do have responsibility. But let's let's leave that aside for a second because I want to go to your second piece, which is a response to the first piece you put out. It's called Defining Information. And if I can sum up that piece, and then you can you can argue with me about it, <laughs> as you're saying, look, yeah, there's there's good stuff and there's bad stuff. And over time, as news events become more important and more people need to know about them, you will get worse information from the internet. Am I am I summing that one up correctly? Yeah, I think so. I, it, this was something that sort of struck me after I published that previous piece, which was that sort of the information on Twitter devolved rapidly in quality, and and 
yes, the just, that's, that, just, that's just sort of a gut feeling, right? You're not measuring that. In any yeah, way. exactly. All, all these, all these are gut feelings. A, a regret I have on the first piece is I, I drew sort of like a normal distribution, and to me that was just illustrative. I didn't mean it's actually normal distribution. You, you drew a bell um, curve with good information and bad information on each side. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and part of it was probably just a the signal to noise ratio got wildly out of whack. I mean, you you went from having very few people who cared intensely about this talking about it to basically everyone talking about it and who just found out about it and were passing on whatever information came across their desk. And, you know, for, and it was, it was very difficult. I, I think I made mistakes, uh, you know, in sort of navigating this over the last week. And I think that that makes sense. There, there's this, I, you know, you go back to things like the election, for example, you know, there was tremendous incentives to push misinformation in that scenario. Obviously the stakes are high. There's a lot of people paying attention to it. The, the, you know, whether it be foreign operators or partisan operators, the, the, you know, the, there, there's a lot of make money. Well, yeah. And that's, that's a big one too. Like a lot of people just want to make money and the best way to do it is to tap into something that's, that's going on right now. So it struck me that this idea of the, the edges, the edges are more valuable, the sort of the less attention is being paid to them. And this virus has been a great example of that where the edges were really, really valuable. And now once we're in, in the maelstrom, the edges are, are it's much harder to get a, a good signal noise ratio and the amount of misinformation is really skyrocketing. So you could get, if you knew where to look or you were tuned in, and especially if you knew how to interpret some of this stuff, you could get very good information about about the virus in the first several months up until really the last month or so. And now the argument is now it's just flooded with all kinds of crap that is either well-meaning or it, there's malintent, doesn't matter. Um, it's just much harder to navigate. Yeah, I mean, last week, honestly, I mean, there was, you know, it, it, it's, it's easy to almost lose our sense of time in, in the way this has you know, this way this has shifted. Yes. But but yeah, I mean, really since, you know, Wednesday, last Wednesday night uh, when the NBA was canceled yep. and Tom Hanks got it and, and you just see like everything changed. And that included, I think, the quality of information that was online. Yeah, it was really marveling. I, I taped the podcast with Brian Windhorst from ESPN at three o'clock uh, Wednesday and he was proposing, he was suggesting the NBA might eventually have to shut down. And uh, I think within six hours, uh, it was. It went from like being a, a, a thing that was hard to imagine to a thing that was reality that quickly. It's one of those things where the it is very hard for everyone and I put myself in this too to sort of like accept the reality of this. And it's hard to wrap your mind around exponential growth. It's hard to believe that that this could happen that we could be in a situation where basically the world's economy is shut down and it's hard to grapple with, and it's you, you're tempted to sort of reach to familiar stories, familiar ways, familiar structures. And I think that's going to be very interesting. Is you know how many things are permanently changed as a result of this. And I, I do I, think there's a similar. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I'm taking over. Uh, we'll, we'll get to. Uh, there I think there's, a sim, there's. I think there's a similar point though about this idea of of the internet and of the flow of information and everyone being a publisher. It's hard to accept. I think that this is the reality. Yes, we could have someone else could have started a Facebook like platform. There was going to be a Facebook like platform. Someone else could have started a different search engine. There was going to be a search engine. And yes, on the edges and on the margins, there might have been different choices made along the way. But this idea that anyone would be out there and have the ability to publish, this idea that there would be massive incentives for bad actors to publish, and also this idea that there is real value. And to your point, yes, the utopians had a point, they missed the downside. I would say the dystopians have a point, but they're missing the upside. And the, the reality is it is what it is. And the best thing we can do is sort of figure out how to manage that going forward. I have a piece that I have not written because I'm not sure that I want to write it, but I'm 
toying with in my head. Maybe we can talk it out here. Do you think the media, and, when I, and I mean media, I mean the conventional media, the, the old gatekeepers, the New York Times of the world, the recodes of the world. Do you think that in an alternate universe, we rewind things back and they had the ability to be more alarmist? to say, this is a really bad thing. This is going to keep people shut in for weeks. It's going to stop the economy. Um, that they should have done that? Or do you think they should have had the sort of cautious reserve tone that they still even have today, where they won't, they'll they'll run a piece about Angela Merkel saying up to 70% of Germans might get this, but they won't put that in the headline. Um, and you, the, the information's all there, but you have to sort of dig in and it's couched and there's a lot of to be sure. Do you think the media should have tilted more towards this is really bad, get ready. It's a really interesting question. I, I would say first and foremost, uh, the New York Times in particular's coverage of this has been phenomenal. I actually think both the New York Times and the Wall, Wall Street Journal were in China from the very beginning. Uh, they, and I want to call that out. And and again, my piece was not an anti-media piece. It was a, it, and it, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes reporters it, viewed it that it's, way. It, you were fighting on Twitter. It's interesting that the media took it that way. That, that's all. That's that's all I'll say. Um, reality is, I think where the media went wrong to the extent they did was the gleeful approach with which a lot of media members attacked people on Twitter that were worried about this. I think that was a really unfortunate approach and look. At the same time, I'm very sympathetic to the fact they weren't writing scare pieces because one. No one was. And I put myself in this camp. I started writing about this virus in January. I, I've covered it pretty regularly. And I didn't raise the alarm to the extent, in retrospect, I wish I would have. And it's just, it's hard. It's hard to go out on a whim like that based on nothing but math. And if I, a one-person publication with, you know, really way more potential upside, if I yeah. had done that than anyone else, didn't have the sort of uh, intestinal fortitude to do so, I'm not going to sit here and say that a large organization with far more at risk was wrong to have done so. I, I, I'm actually pretty sympathetic to that. And I, I will, I would, what I would say is I will applaud their coverage because I think it was great. And I think in the future, maybe lay off the people on Twitter because uh, sometimes they're right. And, and yeah, sometimes they're dicks too. So that it all, it all, uh, well, I, I would say that can run in both directions. Yes. I think the assholes and, and good people uh, distribution probably looks the same as, as the rest of your charts. I'll actually, I'll grant you people on the edges are probably more likely to be assholes. <laughs> and there, there probably is something to that. And yeah, look, some of my best friends are assholes. And I know pretty well. Ben, any any other words of advice for us uh, as you're in Taiwan, which which seems uh, much safer than it does in New York or Florida or Washington or California right now? <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I mean, like this, this it will pass. I mean, that's not that's not any comfort to people who get sick or people who who die. But you know, I think in any situation like this, there's going to reach a point where basically everyone is completely bearish and everyone assumes that it's going to be terrible forever. And that's probably you know when we've we've sort of hit the bottom as far as this crisis goes, and yeah, be kind. I think your your last your last point is is a good one. Like it's something that I've been thinking about really over the last twenty four hours. Is like, look, we're we're all in this together. The last thing we need is to fight about this. And and I would just say, yeah, I, this wasn't an attack. On, I, I want to double down. It wasn't an attack on the media. I value the media. I rely on the media. Like yeah. without the media, what I do would not be possible. And I think that that grace can sort of run in both directions. Like let's all accept where we're at. 
and then try to see the best in each other and then help each other and you know focus on our own weaknesses. You know, let's let's we're all we're all in a it turns out we're all in a glass house right now. That's, that's probably the biggest takeaway. I, I'm gonna take that takeaway. I'm gonna take be kind to each other. Ben, take care of yourself, be safe, and we will talk either in better uh, times or worse times or or something like this again at some point. Sounds good, Peter. I'll, 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 us badgers have to stick together. Take care. See ya. Bye bye. Hi, Rich Greenfield. Last time I talked to you, you worked for uh, for BTIG. Now you work for your own shop, Lights. What's it? Lightspeed. Lightshed. Lightshed. More importantly, you're at home. I'm at home. There's a coronavirus pandemic, and we're going to talk about that in the media business right now. Um, specifically, something you've been writing about the last couple of days, uh, which is what's happening to the movie business and movie theaters and movie distribution. For years, for more than a decade, people like you and me have been wondering when we'd be able to see movies at home the first time in the theaters. We've been asking for it. Some movie studios have asked for it. It never happens. Now it's happening. Want to tell us, catch us up uh, on where we're at today. Look, for a long time, movie studios have wanted to bring movies sooner into the home. I, you know, I think if we forget about people mean you ages. You think about millennials, even Gen Z, the concept of a movie comes out in a movie theater and you can't click a button and watch it at home in a world where basically anything can be done on a phone or a computer. I mean, look at how the whole world is functioning essentially remotely um, via the internet. The fact that you had to go to a movie theater uh, and then wait 90 days for it to be available in the home seems crazy in 2020. Uh, it even seemed crazy, you know, seven, eight years ago. Studios have tried to basically not replace theaters, but move windows up, make movies available sooner. That was in many ways, you know, if you think about uh, Comcast buying NBC Universal, uh, one of the original ideas behind that merger was we own this huge cable system. We have video on demand. Let's now have Universal Pictures and be able to show movies sooner in the home. And that's what they tried to do back in 2011 with Tower Heist. And all the theater owners basically said, if you do this, we won't play any more of your movies. Yeah, just, just just to remind people, there was a movie called Tower Heist. You probably haven't seen it. wasn't very good. had Eddie Murphy and I think Ben Stiller. And yep. Universal's idea was you could pay $60 to watch, I guess, apparently a not very good movie at home in a handful of places. And, and the theater said, hell no. Well, and more importantly, Peter, three weeks after it came out in theaters, they were still giving a three-week window. I mean... This was never intended. Movies at home was never intended to be a day and date experience. It was always thought of as, hey, there's people with young kids. There's people with busy lives. Hey, if we could make new release movies available as a premium experience, it was actually called premium video on demand or premium home theater. We're going to make movies available sooner so that those people who can't get to a theater can basically still spend a lot of money, want to spend a lot of money to see these films. It'll be incremental to the box office experience. And the theater industry just wouldn't let it happen. So this is all background for what is happening right now. So catch us up to where we're at this week. So this week, you know, after we saw basically every major blockbuster pushed out months, if not a year. I mean, uh, Universal's F9 was pushed to next year. Mulan, Bond pushed to later, I think Thanksgiving time. Everybody's shifting their movie slates because there'll obviously be no movie theaters. and People aren't even allowed to go to a movie theater right now. And they're all shut down. So the idea was all the big movies are being pushed out. We saw a lot of consumers online, a lot of investors, a lot of media executives asking me, why are movies not being made available in the home? And then literally yesterday afternoon, Universal Pictures came out and said, two of, actually three of their movies that had already been released in theaters 
will as of next week be available in the home for $20. And that's interesting, but not really, because at the end of the day, those are films that are kind of stuck in this limbo phase of they're out in theaters, but no one can go see them. And they would have been, and they would have been, and they would have been coming to video on demand fairly soon anyway. They've been out for a bit. Correct. But the big news, and I think the reason we're doing this podcast in many ways is what Universal also said is that Trolls, a movie set to come out on April 10th, is going to come out. uh, Literally, you're going to be able to watch it at home at, you know, for that $20 fee. And that movie had never been released in theaters. And by that point, I don't think there'll be any theaters in the U.S. open. Uh, the last few will certainly close in the days ahead. And so this is really the first time we've ever seen a new release movie made available directly to consumers via video on demand, uh, via Apple TV. You, you know, I think all the major on-demand platforms, obviously Comcast will be a leader since they have Comcast set-top boxes and Sky set-top boxes over in Europe. But you're going to see all the major on-demand platforms make this movie available and it really will be a learning experience. And again, unlike that $60 price point that you mentioned before on Tower Heist back in 2011, $20 seems like a much more compelling price point. Still a lot I mean, more expensive you, if, than yeah, Netflix. If you've got a couple of kids and you're going to take them to go see Trolls, you're, you're at 20 bucks already. Um, and, and, and for this, if, if you're in this audience and, and you are not familiar with Trolls, um, it's not the Godfather part too, but it's, it's, it's a fine series and it's a big series and it's something that would have done very well uh, for an audience with kids. And they were already promoting it, by the way. Um, you can go and I think and that's probably one of everybody. the most important points. They've already spent time and money promoting this movie, telling people about it. So it's a sunk cost. If they were going to release it later, they'd have to sort of start the campaign up again. Yeah. And look, the first Trolls movie um, four or five years ago did 350 odd million dollars in global box office. So this this is not the Bond, F9, Mulan, Black Widow type you know, event film. This but it's is not a good, a, solid yeah, it's not an indie movie either. And that's the other thing. No. I mean, you have been able to get certain indie movies um, while they're in the theaters at home. And again, you generally haven't heard of them because they're small movies. This is all this has been happening on the edges. This is the first mainstream movie where you can do this. Yeah, I think this is the first real commercial mainstream movie, to use your word, being made available directly to consumers. Twenty dollar price point. You know, we'll see. I mean, I think it's interesting that they chose something lower than I would have expected. I mean, you know, it's only a rental. So we'll see whether do people like the fact that it's only a 48 hour rental, they don't get to own it the way they normally would own, you know, you go to buy Skywalker right now on Apple TV, or on Amazon, and it's $20 for the digital file, but you get to own it. Here, it's a 48 hour rental for $20. No one's ever tried it before. But I really give Universal a lot of credit, like they're going to learn We've never had the ability to try this before. It was always kind of the reign of terror from the theater industry. This is a great learning. They're going to get a lot of data from Comcast and Sky because they own those platforms. And they'll really see what do people do. Maybe it's not the perfect example because, again, the marketing had already been spent. So it's not like you're doing only online marketing for this digital event. But you're going to still get a real sense of whether there are millions, let alone 10 plus million homes that want to do this worldwide. So your working thesis is, look, Bond movies, Fast and Furious sequels, the movie studios are going to hang on to these as long as they can um, and hope that the, the, the coronavirus subsides enough that we're able to go to movie theaters again in a year or whenever that's going to be. And they'll try to push these out and keep the current system intact. Do you think there will be other versions of this troll experiment, either from Universal or other studios in the next year? Well, look, the, the big movie coming up that's going to be a real battleground, and I think will be the 
you'll get an understanding of, is this maybe becoming the new norm? Is going to be minions because the minions rise of Gru or the return of Gru, I forget the exact name, is coming out in uh, over the summer in July. The last minions did a billion dollars, billion one, I think. Family film, so it fits sort of that family sitting at home. Uh, would you do $20? I don't know whether the price point now is set at 20 or whether this is going to be something where they look to go higher for a bigger film. But I, I think you should be looking at who else does this with and a this bigger is also, film. And this is also a universal film. Also, that's why I bring it up. This is the next major universal film that you have to sort of make a decision on about what you want to do because the May release in, in F9 was obviously moved out to next April. Other studios, look, Disney, which now owns Fox, you know, Fox was another studio that was interested in this, but now that it's part of Disney, Disney has always hated the idea of blowing up the movie theater business or trying to replace the movie theater business. So I just simply don't think Disney will do it. And, but and I to, do pause, think to, pause, to pause on Disney for a second, Disney is specifically only in the blockbuster giant franchise movie business that does, by the way, get millennials and Gen Z and everybody else out to the theater to see Star Wars movies and Marvel movies, right? And they're, they don't do yeah. indie movies. They don't do mid-budget movies, at least right now. Uh, and they've said, look- The only caveat to that, Peter, is that they obviously bought Fox and a yes, lot of those yes. films could definitely use what's happening at Universal. Fox could use that. If Correct. That this process right now. Up until now, they said firmly, we love the system as it, it works for the theaters, it works for us, works for everyone. We're going to keep doing it. And look, the math is pretty simple. If you're going to do a film that's going to do one to two billion dollars, which is what Disney does a lot of, the math on the amount of units you need to sell, especially at a $20 price point, it is very hard to comprehend selling that many units. Again, if the movie's amazing, it might work. The other thing we just don't know, Peter is when every single weekend, let's just say this becomes the new norm, and every weekend there's a new movie coming out for $20, does your excitement for a buy go down when this becomes? Like right now, Trolls is going to be like, oh my God, there's a brand new kids movie available. You haven't been able to get out of the house. Do you want to watch Trolls? Take my money, please. Right, exactly. When it happens every single week, we don't know what's going to happen to behavior. I mean, I'm a little skeptical that every week a household's going to say, hey, I'm going to do this regularly at $20 when Netflix is $12.99 and Amazon Prime is, you know, basically included for free and even Apple TV is free and many people have Disney Plus for free. Like that's where I just don't know right. the staying power and we're going to learn a lot. And we're also headed we are now in a recession I think is officially if it's not officially declared we're certainly headed there. So your disposable income is going to go down. You might be deciding, well, look, I'm paying for cable or for Netflix, but I'm not going out to movies or I'm cutting those way back. And so we'll wait We'll wait for this to show up on Disney Plus or Peacock or whatever it's going to be on. But the key here is just getting some data. You know, what do people think? Getting feedback from consumers, being able to learn from it. It's 2020 and all of these movie studios have never really understood consumer behavior and be able to test the elasticity uh, of demand at different price points. I mean, this is just a golden opportunity. The theaters can't fight back. I'm sure they hate this. Every single theater owner is hating this right now but they don't have any choice. And I give Universal a lot of credit and I wouldn't be shocked to see Warner Brothers follow them in the, in the weeks ahead. And again, Warner Brothers owned by AT&T. They're also gonna have their own streaming service. They have a bunch of levers they can pull. Um, they're also in the blockbuster business, but that'll be interesting to watch. Whether or not we're talking about the coronavirus, we always have to talk about Netflix. Uh, Netflix has been getting into the movie business first sort of haltingly and now they're really great guns. 
Uh, they're going to do 90 movies out this year. They're making a $200 million action blockbuster uh, with, I think, Vin Diesel uh, and Gal Gadot and Ryan Reynolds. They're filming that now, or they were filming that now. Uh, I, think that, I assume they paused. I saw, I think it was Sean, uh, Sean Fantasy at The Ringer pointing out that the biggest movies for the next few months are all going to be Netflix movies because those are going to be the new ones coming out that people can see. Where do, where do you think this leaves Netflix and Amazon who'd been getting into the movie business and having their own fights with theaters? Well, first of all, I think this is just, you know, it, it's hard to kind of explain just how big of an opportunity this is to showcase what is available. You know, I think if you look at some of the European stats, we've seen surges and downloads of apps like Netflix. People are looking for something to do to stay busy, to stay entertained. There's no sports on TV. Um, obviously, late night TV has disappeared. I mean, you're searching for ways to be entertained. And, you know, if you think about movies, people love watching movies uh, on a variety of different places. The pipeline for Netflix will ultimately obviously be impaired by the stoppages of production that you just mentioned. But for a while, they've got a bunch of content, especially from all over the world. And what I think is interesting is if you look at Netflix right now, they started this top 10 list. And I don't have the top 10 in every country, but if I have the, the top 10 in the U.S. right now, Two of the top four titles on Netflix today are original movies. Spencer Confidential is number two in the U.S. and Lost Girls is number four. So two fresh movies. Obviously, you can't go to the movies. And so two fresh movies released direct to Netflix. And they're doing this as a way of increasing the value perception of Netflix. And so they've been able to raise the price of the service from $7.99 several years ago. Now it's up to $12.99. And I think there's a lot more pricing power to go. The problem, you're not seeing other studios do this. You know, like people are saying, like, why can't Disney Plus just put movies like Mulan right on Disney Plus? The answer is they could. The problem is at $6.99, the math doesn't work, especially when you've discounted the service down to sub $6. If you want to collapse Windows, uh, you could do it. You would just need to raise the price because you wouldn't make enough money at $6.99 uh, to be in business with these types of blockbuster They'd have to movies make it an add on or something. And say, all right, it's it's extra dollars more for for the service. Yeah, they could do it like UFC does with ESPN Plus. I mean, it could be like a hey, if you're a Disney Plus subscriber for an extra thirty dollars or twenty dollars, would you like to watch you know Mulan tonight? That's an interesting idea. I I don't think they're heading down that path. It doesn't. I don't think there's any signs that, to your point before, D Disney just doesn't believe in anything but the sequential release pattern for movies. And so I think it's very hard to envision them doing it. But certainly when you look at the data on Netflix, the power of movies stands out. People are consuming a tremendous amount of movies. And the other thing that's interesting, Peter, is international content. You know, we're seeing a surge in a, you know, in some of these shows from overseas that you wouldn't have expected to play out. You know, we're seeing literally originals from, there's an original series from Spain called Elite. It's a top 10 series or top 10 piece of content on Netflix the last couple of days. In Spanish US. original. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing is, you know, people are searching for whatever content is available and Netflix is making content all over the world. And as that content comes into countries like the U.S., it's creating incremental demand. And I, so I, I think this is going to be a real opportunity for them to showcase the breadth of content and also for people to look, kind of dig into the library, because at some point th there won't be as much fresh content as there is right now. Okay, Rich, I'm at the home office. You're at the home office. I got a really good feeling that we're going to be having more of these conversations over the next few weeks. So thank you for your time. And I think we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. Enjoy movies on streaming.
Next up, we're going to hear from Bob Philbin at the Crisis Text Line. But first, a word from this sponsor. Hey there, I'm speaking with Bob Philbin, who's the co-founder and chief data officer at Crisis Text Line. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Why don't you explain briefly what Crisis Text Line is? I think many people have not used it. Uh, many people have. So Crisis Text Line is 24-7 support for people in crisis. And that can range from depression to anxiety to um, thoughts of suicide. We're here for people around the U.S. And we're now in Canada, the U.K., and Ireland as well. And I think you're going to be expanding beyond that as well. And, and just so people understand what the services that you run, you don't provide the counseling. You're kind of like a, this is a very tech thing, right? You're a platform that connects people who need the help with people who can provide the help on, as a volunteer. So we um, we now do both. So okay. we started as a platform back in 2013 where we were the first technology and data built crisis line in the U.S. So we provided that platform. Now we train counselors. We now have 5,000 volunteer counselors around the U.S. who go through our 35-hour training. And then uh, when somebody in crisis texts in, that counselor is waiting on the other end ready to respond. Right. So, but your your idea still is to match the person who needs help with someone who can provide it. It is a nonprofit, correct? Exactly. We're a nonprofit. We match uh, with that care um, to move somebody out of crisis. And this isn't like the like the name says. This isn't generalized therapy. This is for people in a specific moment of crisis. This is something where you're going to call up and get recurring help. That's right. This I think of it as as a short term uh, service in the sense that you you have that moment of crisis. We're there to support you to move out of it. We have two-thirds of our texters mention something they've never shared before. So in many ways, this is a gateway to mental health for a lot of people. And, and the idea, right, is, is the person is going to give you some guidance and then eventually, I think, steer you towards someone who can give them long-term help. About one in five gets long-term help. We uh -huh. used to think that was going to be the, the majority of our work. What we found, though, is most people uh, do not need that. They, they're looking for somebody to feel connected to and help them through that moment. Um, one in five get a referral. Only 4% of our texters get some kind of referral to on-the-ground services. So the vast majority are looking for help in a, in a hot moment, and we're helping them get to a cool calm. And, and we'll talk about hot moments in just a second. Just to give some people a sense of scale, how many folks are you dealing with in a given day, week, month? Yeah, so we um, were around 4,000 to uh, 4,500 conversations per day in our four countries. Um since launching in August of 2013, we've exchanged 150 million messages now with with texters in crisis. Yesterday, I'll say, uh, in part related to coronavirus, we saw about double our normal volume. So we do spike when there are um, crises that that are at the national or global level. So that that spiked to 8,000, 8,000 plus uh, yes. conversations that started yesterday. Or has that been going on for a while? Uh, it really jumped yesterday for the last 24 hours. These spikes tend to be driven by social media. So when people are in crisis, uh, because they're often isolated or a little bit ashamed potentially of that, they look online for resources. And so a uh, online um, uh, post about us went viral yesterday. We expect that to continue over the next oh, week. Oh, whose post was that? I'll go look it up. Oh, yeah. man. I can, I, you know, so I don't remember the name offhand. It's not somebody who um, has a lot of followers. Uh -huh. What we often see is, there's just an empathetic, kind of vulnerable post about finding value in the service. We did get some uh, retweets from from people with a lot more followings. I think uh, Melinda Gates may have reshared it. But it. so yeah, so we do get some good 
um, support for those posts. So it's interesting because I would have thought you guys would have been seeing a ramp for the last week or so. Um, I mean, but I, every day is, I guess, a calamity. So you are not only the co-founder, but you're the chief data officer. What can you tell us, if anything, about the nature of the calls and inquiries you guys are getting related to coronavirus and how they might differ from your standard your standard call? Yeah. And it's a really good point. We expected volume to go up over the last couple of weeks, but we're seeing two countervailing trends. Try not to use too many science-heavy words, but um, one get a little bit of science here. It's good. (laughs) Okay, nice. We're all all epidemiologists now. Sweet. So we're seeing um, reduction in what we normally saw, which is a lot of relationship-focused problems, especially with young people in school. Now that people are moving out of school, some of those day-to-day challenges, bullying, romantic relationships are on the downswing in terms of driving crisis. The other trend that we are seeing is an increase in in anxiety and fear around uh, coronavirus. So that's why our volume, we think, has been, been flat on average, but the nature is changing. So to your point, we're seeing a lot more uh, COVID-related conversations. Those are now about 20% of our conversations are mentioning the virus. And the dominant emotion and crisis there is anxiety. So I think it's important for everyone to know that there, there, there are really two crises happening here. We have the coronavirus pandemic, and then there's this second layer of mental health impacts that's coming downstream from coronavirus. That's leading with anxiety. And I'll, I'll just give you a few words that we're seeing textures use, paranoid, freaked, anxious, fear, so intense anxiety. Um, and I think that's going to continue to, to crest. Do you see, uh, do, you know, right now, most of the reports about uh, sort of cities and areas most affected tend to be sort of coastal, Seattle, San Francisco, California, now New York. Are you seeing calls from those areas where you're getting the most reports about cases or is it spread out geographically? It maps very closely. When you look per capita, um, it maps very closely to where we're seeing spikes in in COVID on the ground. Um, that's where the anxiety is the most intense. I think one of the patterns that we're seeing is how much the uncertainty around coronavirus is driving the anxiety because we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know how intensely it's going to be felt in each community or how it's going to affect your loved ones. I think that uncertainty is where we step in to just voice that and then try to, instead of getting to the other side of the coronavirus, which who knows how long it's going to last, it's more, what can we do to move one step forward or reduce anxiety today? So let's let's talk about that a little bit, because I think I think what you guys are doing is really interesting. And I do want to spend more time talking about how you created the service and what else you might do with it. But walk me through. I'm 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 upset and freaked out about covid as I should be. Um, I don't know whether I should go out and uh, uh, get groceries. Uh, The mayor just said we might have to shelter in place. And it turns out the governor says no, but that doesn't make me feel good. What are you going to tell me to make me feel a little bit better or reduce my my anxiety? So we're, we're finding three patterns, and I'll, I'll say we are not um, the experts in terms of exactly what's happening with sure. COVID and what policies to follow, and, and so I think that's um, No that's one important is, to remember. unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> that's fair. So, right, so we're dealing with kind of the downstream effects of that, which is given that doubt, uncertainty, uh, different, different answers to what's actually happening. Um, we're there to handle that anxiety. So when somebody texts in um, with that anxiety, our counselors are trained in two skills. One is active listening. So asking questions, reflecting back what they're hearing. And and to give you a specific example, what we're seeing in the data right now about what's really helping texters who are mentioning coronavirus 
is normalizing the anxiety, saying, hey, uh, you're not the only one feeling this. It's okay to feel anxious. Um, and, and actually using that language back, saying, hey, it's okay to feel freaked out, to be anxious, to experience fear. Uh, we call that mirroring. But normalizing that that mental health side effect of coronavirus turns out to be incredibly important. Nobody's going through this alone. So that's one pattern that we're seeing. You don't want to tell people, hey, buck it up and, and uh, your grandparents suffered through worse in, in, in this war, that world war. Exactly. Or like certainly the physical effects are that the primary focus, how do we stop this from spreading and um, triage, et cetera. But there is this second effect of the mental health that's incredibly important to recognize. That's it's a real thing. So the the mirroring you're talking about, um, I've gotten a little dose of of, of uh, things psychological in the last couple of years. Um, is this something that an average person can just try talking with their family or friends or loved ones? Yes. So there's no danger um, in trying this on your own if you're not trained. No, it's uh, so um, at the core, what we're saying is you're not going through this alone. So any kind of language that you would use. And it, um, I mean, the amazing thing is all of our counselors, our volunteers, they trained by learning these skills over 35 hours. But what we're finding is people without a mental health background can learn these skills. Uh, this is just a taste of it. If you want the full experience, do come volunteer with us. We're we're expecting high volume over the next couple of months. And it's a, it's an awesome skill to have, which uh, at its core is really how to be empathetic. So uh, you're leading me right in my segue, Bob. If I do want to help out a crisis text line, I could I suppose I could write you a check, right, or send you a Venmo. And if I wanted to volunteer, yes. what's the procedure? Yes, uh, Venmo and, and checks always appreciated. Um, a second way to to give back and actually learn some skills along the way are becoming a volunteer. You can go to our website, crisistextline.org, sign up to volunteer. Um, and we are uh, now looking at ways to actually streamline the process for people to get started. But it's a matter of days to get into a training and then that 35 hour time period to, to train up and start volunteering. And I do uh, expect based on researchers I've talked to, we're talking about the mental health effects here of coronavirus lasting for months. So even if you come in now, there's there's plenty of work to do, plenty of people to support around this coronavirus anxiety. And maybe you're at home. You're working from home, but you got more hours than you thought you might have had in the day or something you could tackle a little bit during your workday. Exactly. We uh, we find people can hop on for 30 minutes, handle a conversation, put two hours aside at night. But right. People have a lot. Uh, some people have more time on their hands right now, especially, uh, you know, if you're working in a different city from where your family is. This is a great opportunity to, to take a small part of supporting our country on coronavirus um, on and, and learn a skill at the same time. So, yeah, you can watch that that Mark Wahlberg show on Netflix. It's not very good. You can watch Lego Masters <laughs> on Fox is very good. And then when you're done with that, you can volunteer. Maybe you can pick, you can pick the order. Yes, exactly. We're not saying to replace that, but maybe over time you'll find the, the volunteering a little more rewarding. But Lego Masters is pretty good. Yeah, that's that's fair. All right, Bob, thank you for your time and thank you for your work. We're going to find a way to come back to you guys down the line. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Thanks again to everyone at Vox Media, especially Jelani Carter, who made this episode possible. Thanks to our guests, Ben Thompson, Rich Greenfield, Bob Philbin. And thanks to you, our listeners. We're doing this for you. Let us know how we can make it better, more useful. We will talk to you very soon. Stay safe. <laughs>